You're listening to Seaside Book Club Discussions, bringing you the authors and their work. Come sit with host Donasia Furlow to discover and discuss. Hello, welcome to another episode of Seaside Book Club Discussions. This episode is a special virtual book club installment. Today I have with me Josiana and we'll be discussing A Christmas Memory by Truman Capote because it's never too early to start talking about Christmas. For me, anytime after Halloween is fair game. Josiana developed a passion for learning at an early age from his parents, both avid readers. His favorite genre is nonfiction, primarily history and biographies, but he has enjoyed the well-written historical fiction as well. A resident of the Chicagoland area, Joe lives with his wife and three children, and when he is not reading, he is developing a podcast idea of his own. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you, Dora. The book that we're going to discuss is A Christmas Memory. Now, in doing a little research, the book was originally published in 1956. It had several adaptations uh, since then. When did you first read the book? Well, I read the book... Uh... Not many years ago, I was an adult when I read it. Uh, it was, it started out life actually as an article. Uh, it was a short story in Mademoiselle magazine. And, and uh, it was adapted into a children's book that was illustrated. And uh, it was given as a gift to my mother. I grabbed a hold of a copy of it and... Um, it's just uh, really impacted my uh, my life, and it's just a, a very enjoyable book to read. Now, that's definitely interesting. I definitely admire those individuals who create short stories and are able to condense this entire world into such a very small sector, you know, for you to have taken in that story in a magazine, you know, and for it to have been adapted into you know, your daily life, your traditions as far as Christmas time and was able to, you know, give that to your, you said your mother-in-law? Actually, it was a gift to my mother. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. So you mentioned earlier uh, in another offline conversation a little bit about the illustration and the artwork. Can you describe that for the listeners? When a book is illustrated, it's not always... Uh, reproduced at that edition. There can be subsequent uh, editions with different illustrators. The illustrator whose work I really appreciated here, her name is Beth Peck. And uh, she uh, had done a variety of watercolors that just really captured not only the story itself, but really gave you a feel for a variety of textures, you could feel or sense crumbling plaster on the corners of the walls. You could feel the heat of the stove in the kitchen. You could see and, and sense the wear on people's clothing and also uh, sense when uh, she did the outside scenes, you could sense the cold uh, of water turning to ice, things like that, of like a, a, a sloppy, muddy pathway. Uh, 
things like that. And I, I think that she really just brought out an essence of the story beyond the words, which being the words of Truman Capote were just spectacular the way they were put together. Yeah, that definitely does sound magical. I think that we lose a lot of that wonder now that everything's uh, turning digital. You know, I have a question. Has the Christmas memory, has it become a tradition that you have shared with your children? It has. Uh, My children are still at the ages, my oldest is 14, and they're still at the ages where they really haven't really appreciated it to the point that that I have. Maybe it'll never happen. That's all right. But I think that there's a lot to be said. Uh, if, if we have just a few moments, I had an opportunity actually to teach in a school for one year. I was teaching English to a parochial school, uh, classes ranging from the third grade upward of eighth grade and into high school as well. And the year that I taught approaching the holiday, I did read that book to each class and uh, that had left an impression on me. And hopefully uh, it was something that they remembered. Now, was this during the Christmas holidays? It was, it was approaching the Christmas holiday. And were you able to use the copy uh, with that rich illustration for them to really get into, you know, the mood and the feel of that story? Yes, and the class uh, sizes were rather intimate. They were, it, being that it was a parochial school, in many cases, there were no more than eight to a class. So I was really able to show uh, the illustrations. Uh, unfortunately, in today's world, our senses are bombarded by so much sight and sound and the children, uh, whether it's a blessing or a curse or a little bit of both, uh, are so involved in their video games and everything is just high level action uh, that perhaps a sweet sentimental story that is based on an older time because the setting of the book goes back to the 1930s, the uh, Depression era in, in America, uh, perhaps that can be lost on people, or perhaps they need to revisit it over again in different stages of their life. And uh, I hope that they'll have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, most definitely. I think that we're losing a lot of that um that imagination that we were uh, encouraged to have, you know, everything is pretty much done for you. All the pictures move. It's supposed to be as realistic as possible. You don't have that experience now of just, you know, sitting in your nook and just kind of looking at these illustrations and having it come to life and feeling immersed. You know, everything is three-dimensional now. The more realistic the better, just like looking at a watercolor illustration for you had brought back so much nostalgia. Well, if you, if you think about it, when you and I were younger, they used to read us books to settle us down at the end of the day and give us a chance to rest and fall asleep. And uh, very seldom 
anymore does it seem that that's an opportunity for for young people and it's it's a shame i don't want to get on a uh, a soapbox but uh there's a lot of ways that young people today are not really allowed to be children and one of those ways it seems to me has has been the opportunity to read to them through books give them an opportunity to dream at their own pace as opposed to the pace of uh, a high tech video of some kind some kind of external stimulation and uh, children I think they need that I think they deserve that and I'll go as far as as to say that adults need and deserve that as well and what excites me about podcasting and what you're doing here is that uh, in a way it brings back the vision or the sense of radio where you are able to create a scene in the mind that is more powerful and more sincere to our hearts than something that can be manufactured. Most definitely. You know, I fell in love with podcasting through, you know, that way of just missing, missing radio, missing uh, talk shows. You know, I'm a big listener of um, several podcasts and there's just something about keeping up with the lull of a conversation. I think we are so very isolated on our cell phones and with our earbuds and going through life that there's something oddly comforting about uh, common interests being expressed, you know, being able to just tune into something that you want to hear. There's an audience out there for, you know, every podcast. And Dora, do you find that in our world, it's difficult for us, at least in the States, you probably see that uh, where you're at, but in the States, it's very challenging for us to discuss anything on any level without being offended, without having our feelings hurt, without needing to uh, get the upper hand in a conversation. We can't simply talk and share and express ourselves and our opinions without seemingly getting into turmoil and conflict. And it's unfortunate. But I believe that part of the dialogue that really makes a a society and a community the best that they can be happens as a result of people who have learned to express themselves by what they have exposed themselves to. And we both know that reading requires a certain measure of discipline above and beyond uh, sitting in front of a television screen that's just feeding you bilge one day after the other, high-tech commercials, and then back to the, uh, back to the scenery. Uh, the book it requires something of us, but it gives us so much more. You had addressed me a little earlier on, you know, what I felt about not being able to, you know, fully have a conversation anymore. I think that it's a double-edged sword that we live in the age of technology. We have, uh, or greater technology, the age of information in which you can 
Google anything and it shows up in three seconds. People don't usually, to my, you know, my own experience, have that time to fully discuss things, fully figure things out for themselves. If you want, uh, you can fact check something in three seconds and that will be the end of that. You know, there'll be eight different links that you can go to and that's it. That's the end of the conversation. And although I do celebrate the strides that we have made in technology and information being shared to all, there's also uh, almost a weird big brother mentality in which um, we are being fed what to think. And I feel that a lot of people are not fully aware of that. Because there is no, it's so controlled and we're not really fully, we're not really fully recognizing that, you know, Google will let you know which websites to go to, what to do next. You know, we are constantly bombarded with uh, what to say, how to dress, what is popular right now, what is not, what is being canceled, you know, how to feel about this and that. The veil has been lifted from you know, people that we used to idolize, like, you know, when they say, you know, never meet your heroes. Right now you can go to your hero or your uh, idols or your favorite author or actor's Instagram page and be disenchanted, you know. So there is just, there is just so much of us always having to be on, always having to be politically correct, always having to be recorded and monitored. And we are constantly in a state of image building and continuing on with our brand and being uh, pushed to have a brand, to take a definite stance on several subjects. Yeah, we're in that time. So for me, I'd say that we've lost some and we've gained some. And I'm hoping that in time we can find that sweet spot of being able to hear each other and just fully allow each other to to be ourselves, be our most authentic selves and saying, it's okay. We don't have to follow this paradigm. Everyone dresses alike now they you know tell us what to do what to wear and i don't think a lot of people are noticing that at all you know and you can feel really left out of the loop if you're a bookish person and you know you're into whatever you find yourself being an outcast if you're not on everything that's happening on social media right now it's very true and uh i'm not sure if you had an opportunity to see the film Wall E. It was a film a number of years ago, and it depicted a futuristic uh, world. The world was, it had become uninhabitable, and its inhabitants were sent out into space aboard a space station, elaborate space station. And when the planet had healed to the point where it was able to support life, they would be allowed to come back. The only thing is, is that the people who made the decisions didn't want to ever come back. 
And what you were saying about uh, being told what to wear, what to do, uh, the inhabitants in this film would be told, uh, good morning, today the color that's in is red. They would press a button on their console and everybody's clothes would turn red. And that's exactly uh, like what you're describing in this in this sort of society where we're not really uh, taught or valued to, to think and to give our own opinions and be our authentic self. I think that one of the experiences that I had regarding this book, it's a little bit off track. Forgive me if I go a little bit off track, but I think a lot of things when I when I think about this book, and one of them is that I was teaching in a, uh, a distinctively Christian school, and I was utilizing a book that was written by an openly gay man who in his time, it really was not permissible to be openly gay, and yet in, in a lot of ways he was. And with a few of my older classes, the question had come up about uh, his identity, and I did discuss it a little bit. And it, it was interesting to me because sometimes when somebody is different than us, we want to separate ourselves from them. We want to push them away. We want to marginalize them. They're not like us. They don't get to sit at our table. People like Truman Capote have brought so much in their natural giftings that they can't be ignored. If you were to uh, teach, for example, a class on literature in the 20th century and you left out Truman Capote, it, there would be a, a, a large hole, I would say, in the experience. <coughs> and what we see in books, the different ideas, ideas that challenge us, ideas that may be different than ideas that we hold, but these ideas, they exist side by side in a library, and that fascinates me. The, um, the uh, books that have different ideas in them, they don't fight on the shelf. They don't knock one, each, one another off the shelf. They don't hide one another uh, in order so that they, the book doesn't get uh, taken out. They sit there proudly side by side in a, in a way, they silently honor their differences. And when you think about it, that's about as much as we could hope for as a people to be different, to be distinctive, to be who we are. And I hope to say that in our differences to always be kind because kindness is a, is a factor of humanness to be human 
Well said. And if, and if we're always these things, perhaps we too will be able to exist in our lives on that shelf and not feel like we have to take out the one that is different than us. Most definitely. So let me ask you, what are some of your most fond Christmas memories? Well, I have I have a lot of Christmas memories to draw on. Uh, to give you a little bit of a background, I was uh, the son of parents who were older, and their parents were older. So I, I think of myself in terms of coming from an older family. So other people, uh, people from my class, other people my age, their parents might be uh, younger and more active and able to do certain things with them. My parents were a little bit older and a little bit limited in some of the things that they would do, but they had a wealth of understanding and experience and they had a sensitivity to the nuances that come with maturity. And that made a real impression on me. Well, as far as Christmas memories are concerned, uh, the things that I'm most fond of is that I come from a family where we always had people who were involved in public service. My grandmother was a nurse my sister was a nurse. They worked literally across the street from where we lived. They worked at the hospital where I was born. Uh, my older brother was a mechanic. Uh, he served in the military. My other brother, who is older, served in the military as well. When we, when we celebrated Christmas, depended on when people would be able to get off of work. Many times it was Christmas Eve. Sometimes it was Christmas morning. It didn't matter. The only thing that mattered and the thing that really made the holiday special was the anticipation of somebody that you love coming through that front door. Yeah. That's what made it. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, as a young person, as a child living in an environment where you know, there was that anticipation for your loved ones uh, gathering together. Were you aware of, uh, or acutely aware that they were doing this all for the kids, doing this all for you? To be honest with you, when I was a kid, and I dwell on this a lot because I'm a parent now and I'm bringing up children of my own, but nothing, it seems, except for birthdays, seemed to be all about me. It always seemed to be about everybody, and certainly I was part of that. I was one of them. But I never felt really especially about Christmas to be the center of the celebration. My thing is I had a little bit of a different experience. A lot of the time I hear people say, you know, Christmas is all about the kids. We're doing this for the kids. It's for the kids to have a good time. I grew up for a good portion of my life 
as an only child uh, and I lived with my grandparents. So it's kind of a similar experience. These are older individuals that have more time to dedicate to you, to your thoughts, your feelings, talking to you and all that stuff. And so it was a time that I myself felt very, you know, very good, very safe. You know, and I think that they made the effort to make that time more special for me. I was, you know, they wanted me to have a Christmas tree. They wanted me to be able to open presents like everyone else because I was a quiet kid. I was an introverted kid. And I think that they were aware of all of this and tried to make those holidays, even if it's something I didn't believe in very much themselves, they tried to actively build those memories. And looking back at it, I realized that that is what they were trying to do. For me to have those positive uh, feelings and memories around the holidays. And so the nostalgia for me and why I still feel the way I feel around that time is because of the people in my life actively doing this and saying, you know, we're going to play our Christmas music. We're going to wrap up presents, even if it's just the three of us right now, just so this individual can experience, you know, unwrapping a bowl, wondering what it is. And it, it meant a lot. Sure it did. And when we talk about the title of this book being a Christmas memory, really, when it comes down to it, that's sort of our legacy. Uh, one day we will grow older, and if we're fortunate, we'll be very old before we pass on. And the legacy that we leave are those memories that someone who's younger than us will be able to say, yeah, that person really made an effort to make this special for me. Uh, I have I have memories, and I have memories of people who lived, who were born in the 19th century. Those they're my memories of them, and they still live. You know, there's so many themes to unpack within the actual book itself, and it's surrounded by so much of that nostalgia, of that you know that that Christmas feeling that. I feel like with every year we get a little a little further and further away from that I didn't uh, double back to the plot. So just for the listeners who hadn't taken any time uh, to read the short story or hadn't heard of it before, it's essentially uh, about, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, the, or what I may have missed rather, a little boy, or he's a gentleman now, he's an older man and he's narrating and it's about his Christmas memory as a seven-year-old boy. And uh, he has this 66-year-old female cousin who later on is uh, identified as Sook Falk, I believe. And yeah, they end up having a lovely time on Christmas. And um, it's something that stuck with him. And for him to be an adult and make this uh, autobiography about a really lovely Christmas with someone who made him feel special. We are the Christmas gift 
even more so than any tangible thing that we can hand to another person. That's possibly the biggest takeaway from the story. It certainly is a a large part of the takeaway of the Christmas story itself, that the gift is in the, the individual who has come and is sharing their gift, their presence among you. You know, a lot of people are, you know, they say that everything is, it's too much commercialism, but it's what's out there now. You know, you have ads screaming in your face on what's the hottest toy or the hottest thing to get. Everyone's on their smartphone trying to figure out what the best gift to get their significant other is and whether or not they're going to have money to pay for all of these great gifts that they got to snap pictures of and post online to prove that they are living abundant lives or everyone had a great Christmas. And like I said, I feel like we're just straying further and further away from what it is. I feel like the holidays, yes, they have controversial beginnings, but they had evolved into just kind of an excuse to to celebrate your family, an excuse to sit around the table together, even if you don't do it you know, every night. You get that feeling with, but it's Christmas, but it's Thanksgiving, and it gives everyone that excuse to come together. For some people, it's very difficult. Their families are dysfunctional. The holiday uh, doesn't change that. The holiday doesn't necessarily make that better. But I think that overall, there's a discipline involved in getting together on a regular basis, whether it is for the holidays or to celebrate someone's birth, in some cases, even anniversaries, wedding anniversaries and such. I have opportunities to sit in celebrations like that, and I look around at all the people, almost like I disappear. And I notice the very young, and I notice the very old, and everybody in between. And I'm grateful that they had an opportunity to interact with one another. It's very healing and it's very necessary. It's not often very perfect, as we both know. Right. Now, I think we mentioned it a little earlier, but the Christmas memory that the author is describing, it turns out to be his last Christmas with his cousin, Sook. Now, um... In the story, it's clear that this affected the author enough. Um, And his cousin and him appear to be kindred spirits in the sense that they are both so tender-hearted. Now, the author brings up that later he is sent right to military school. Now, do you think that him baking those fruitcakes with his cousin prompted his family to send him off to middle school to toughen him up? And if so, what are your thoughts on this treatment of boys? But there's something important about it, and I'm glad that it takes place. I don't think that the issue was specifically the fruitcakes. I have the burden of having read in addition to the book itself, so I know a little bit about Truman Capote's life and his parents' Both were on the road quite a bit to find work. It was the Great Depression. It was a very difficult time in in history. There were other things 
at play as well, I'm sure. But that was part of it. And Truman Capote was sent to military school because uh, he was his personality was starting to show uh, effeminate qualities. And you could look at that one of two ways and say the the parents, the mother, might have been acting out of a sense of compassion because she knew and understood what a different person would be treated like in society. You could look at it the other way and and say, you know, it's a shame that the family could not have accepted him for who and what he was. What happened is what happened, and it's sort of that way. It plays out in our lives as well, uh, for for better or for worse, the people who love us have made decisions for us, which have either played out to be good or not so good. And this was one aspect of Truman Capote's life. Now, in the story, they mention on that last Christmas, you know, wanting Sook and Buddy to get each other wonderful presents. And they both end up getting each other kites, which they end up flying together. And there are other presents from other family members, and they it doesn't mean as much mm-hmm. as those kites that they made for each other and flew together. And it says so much about the intention and love that can be felt behind a gift. I've received what is the most meaningful gift you have ever received on Christmas? Meaningful to me over time. Uh, as a child. My parents, my mother specifically, always made sure that I received at least one book at Christmas. I was fascinated as a as an adult growing up to realize that sometimes my mother would select used books, be, not because she couldn't afford new books, but let's face it, some of these classic stories have gone out of print. And they're simply not available anymore. And so uh, if she found something special, whether it was new or used, she would put it in the hands of somebody that she thought really would value it and really care for it. Uh, Any gift that I received over time has been meaningful on that level to me. That whether new or used, whether perfect or whether it came from someone's own possessions, that there was a thought behind it, and the thought was for my care. It was a genuine thought for my care and my uh, consideration, and I valued that so much. Truly does mean a lot. Um, My very favorite, most personal gifts came from my grandparents. They continue to be a huge part of my life. Uh, my grandfather would take me out uh, to a toy store, you know, after school. And I guess he would just observe the things that I looked at and would play with. And they would just show up at least one thing on Christmas. And it meant so much. I felt completely loved and taken care of that this individual would take the time to observe the things that I was interested in. And to have all this anticipation of watching this in the window and wishing that I had it, to seeing it, 
it meant so very much for me, you know, as a young person, even my grandmother, a little out of touch at the time, had given me a large doll at the age of 16. A doll that I had been looking at from the time I was like maybe four or five. And weirdly enough, I love that doll so much at my age uh, because it had come from her, because it is something that the inner child in me had so wanted that for whatever reason, I held on to it as long as I possibly could at that age in high school because she had done so, because she had went out of her way to hide the gift and present it to me on Christmas. And we don't, I live in St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. We don't have snow. All of the interactions with the traditional Christmas, with the crackling fireplace are things I only experience on the silver screen or on TV at home. So the closer we could make it feel like that, was the better for me. And I think that they really made the effort. In some ways, it was a magical time. And I think that the making of magic for another person, for lack of a better term, is the closest that many of us will ever get to being Santa Claus. Because really, that's the that's the image that we have created of Santa Claus. I believe in Santa Claus, as a matter of fact, uh, for very good reasons. And I think the the best reason that I can come up with is that I believe in Santa Claus because we need Santa Claus and others need Santa Claus. There have been times when I have been privileged to be Santa Claus for others. And I've never uh, broken character. I've always respected yeah. that character. And I and that's just an aspect of the uh, yeah. the magic. You had brought up a bit of the author's life that I had no idea about. Um, I only suspected through the short story about the feminine qualities and what may have happened and why he was sent to military school or what may have been a part of it. Now, do you think that Buddy and Sook met each other's needs as a motherless child, uh, which would be on Buddy's part, or one accepting of his more, um, it's a his gentler nature? Question. And I can only answer from my own heart uh, without any uh, scholastic background in the question. Uh, the only thing that I could uh, express about that, I believe that she did not really represent uh, a mother figure to him in any way. I believe that he was so disappointed by the traditional mother figure that, that he had that he wasn't necessarily looking, even at that young and tender age, I don't think he was looking for that. Right. What do you think that he had found in Sook? And I have a question for you, actually. Scratching that, I get the idea that Sook may have been an individual who may have had a 
younger mindset than her years. Developmentally, I'm not quite sure if this is what the author points to. What are your thoughts on that? I absolutely believe that if Sook was alive in our generation, we would describe her as having special needs. She would have definitely been uh, developmentally disabled, and uh, she would not have probably worked outside of the home or something very basic uh, back then. They did not have uh, a lot of the services that are available for such people now. And so uh, it was a tough call between sending them to an institution where literally uh, the treatment was not good or not adequate or taking them home and letting them make the most of their life. And you'll notice that uh, as you read the book and her character unfolds, you'll see a person who has made quite a bit of her own life. There are a lot of things that she hasn't done, but there are a number of things that she has done and that she's capable of doing. I could see her making these fruitcakes. And I have to tell you, Dora, I don't believe she used a recipe. I think she knew how to make it because just because a person has developmental disability, it does not mean they're not street smart. There's that sense of horse sense. They used to call it horse sense or common sense. And I think she had that in spades. She understood uh, the characteristics and qualities that meant that made for a meaningful life. And I think that when other people grieved her, when they made her feel sad or sorry or low, I think that she just had come to the limitation of her ability to express herself and to express that her lifestyle and her viewpoint was just as viable as theirs which is unfortunate, but really, when you think about it, uh, her life was very rich in the things that she was able to do, the things that she enjoyed doing. And absolutely, uh, with the friendships that she had, and Buddy was one. And it was interesting that Buddy uh, got to witness her decline through letters. Well, it That's correct. She actually always referred to him as Buddy, and you'll notice that in in the story, he's only referred to as Buddy. And the understanding in the beginning of the story is that she calls him Buddy because he reminds her of her, her childhood friend. Right. And over time, she lost that distinction. She thought he was her childhood friend time. It's touching. And uh, certainly in our society today, uh, we have loved ones, uh, some of which are dealing with uh, Alzheimer's disease. And they see the steady progression over time and over holidays, uh, more and more uh, aspects of their ability and their personality being lost. And uh, 
it's a challenge. Uh, science has not unlocked that mystery for us yet. Until that time, I hope that we'll always be able to act with compassion. So, as we discussed a little earlier, you know, the holidays are coming up. What are your plans for this Christmas season? Well, during the holidays, my family is involved in church and the activities uh, become, we become quite busy during uh, church. I sort of play the role of more support than being involved in those activities myself. So uh, I'll be taking uh, children back and forth to places and taking the family uh, to church so that they can participate in, in the activities that they're involved in. And uh, whether you are involved in a church or whether you're not, the holidays can be a very hectic time. And what that generally means is that you don't have an opportunity to be reflective, to sit and just enjoy aspects of the holiday. And so for me, that has meant that I have embraced the season of Advent a little bit more. And uh, in our uh, church culture, we have uh, what's called an Advent wreath, which has uh, four candles in it representing the four, day, the four weeks prior to Christmas. So the first candle would be lit at the very beginning of December. And there's really nothing to it. There's no, uh, there's no particular incantation or particular prayer that you make or anything like that. Uh, you can read uh, devotional texts and things like that. Uh, but basically, I like about Advent the fact that there aren't a lot of different Advent can candle styles and they don't go on sale and you don't go to Osco and pick them up and you know it, it isn't like that you have to kind of search out an Advent uh, wreath and you have to kind of do these things on your own and it's in that quietness and reflection that I find what I need at Christmas well said thank you now, you mentioned, or I mentioned rather, a little bit about your upcoming podcast that you are working on. Can you, you know, for listeners, give us a little sneak peek on some of the things or some of the content that you are working uh, to bring forward in your podcast? Well, my podcast has a number of different elements to them, and I don't know if all the elements fit. I haven't quite gotten to the point where I've put anything together yet, but I'm drawing from various sources. I was inspired by uh, the writer Garrison Keeler, who produced, for quite a while, he produced a, a show called A Prairie Home Companion, which was based in a, a, a fictional part of the, uh, the world and featured fictional characters. And he always uh, had, at the end of his program, uh, an update or a letter from uh, Lake Wobegon, which is uh, the the setting of the story. And I wanted to have uh, a 
a story similar to that, but not uh, drawing very heavily from his example. But we have a natural glacier-cut lake in town, and that's going to be sort of the setting for things that happen in my podcast. Uh, Part of it is going to involve interview, and part of it is going to involve uh, uh, sort of a, a, a spiritual light discussion on a variety of topics and uh, maybe a few sound effects and maybe a few musical pieces here and there as I'm able to do Uh, but uh, it's just drawing these elements together in a way that it makes sense that's my challenge Wow, we look forward to new updates and developments on your podcast which I will definitely keep up with I'd like to thank you so very much for coming on the show for this installment of the Virtual Book Club. It's my pleasure and my honor. I'd like to thank you listeners as well for tuning in. This has been another episode of Seaside Book Club Discussions, and this is your host, Anisha Furlow, signing out. Remember, listeners, keep reading.